Matthew chapter 5, church, is where we are. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. We are going to begin in verse 13. No, not verse 13. Verse 17 is where we are this morning. So we are traveling verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew. Matthew is an evangelist. He is a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A lot of what we just listened to Corey speak about as he was sharing the gospel comes out of this Sermon on the Mount passage. We are going through this extremely slow. Today is going to be very thick. Well, you're welcome. Every time you listen to me, it it is kind of thick because I love the word for sure. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to read our verses to give us context, and that will help give me a springboard to really outline where we've been thus far in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus is going, especially in the sermon, where the Gospel is going, and that'll give us the right framework to actually sit in what Jesus is saying in this teaching. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you absorbed any of that language, you ought to be shifting in your seat just a little bit, even if you're really comfortable in what the gospel proclaims in regards to our relationship with Jesus Christ. But here's, here's the outline and here's the framework. Early chapters of, of Matthew, he is telling us who Jesus is, his origins, his nature, his character, some prophecies that Jesus has already fulfilled. But there at his baptism, Jesus makes this statement to John the Baptist that we are to fulfill all righteousness. So this morning, we're going to really press into what righteousness means and how can our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the super religious, know-it-all, living-it-out individuals in the culture and the time. How can we actually have righteousness that's greater than theirs? That's going to lead into this conversation. So Jesus is telling John the Baptist that we are to fulfill all righteousness. As Jesus is going into the culture and preaching this gospel of repentance, that we need to have a change of mind, a change of words, a change of action and behavior in our lives, away from religion, away from the sins of the culture, away from the desires of our own heart to the Lord, because his kingdom is at hand. As Jesus is teaching that main idea, this, this foundation of what righteousness is, who he is and the fulfillment of that righteousness and how we receive righteousness from him is the overarching umbrella of what the Old Testament, the New Testament, 
and our Lord and Savior communicates to us is in regards to the subject matter of righteousness. As he is communicating in the beginning of this sermon, here's some character attributes that we ought to have and ought to pursue in our walk and relationship with Jesus. One of those is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You have a yearning, you have a desire to eat food, to drink water, that same desire ought to be in us for righteousness within our own souls, our own righteousness. And the, the New Testament communicates to us very clearly our own righteousness is not that of the law and obedience to a set of rules. The righteousness that we have comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Then he also said, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So this thing, what righteousness is and what it is in your life as an individual, Jesus tells us that you, it's going to bring about persecution. Persecution from within your own household, from the culture, from even within the body of Christ and the church, you can be persecuted for Jesus's righteousness and the culture, obviously, from those that are totally outside the body can persecute you. So already multiple times Jesus has brought up this whole idea of righteousness. And now that we have that as a framework, we're going to save the rest of the righteousness conversation for the end of this because Jesus doesn't hit it till the end of what he's communicating here. But what he begins with is don't think. The whole idea of this do not think that I came for this reason or that reason is we ought to all be able to listen to that instruction to Jesus as, in asking yourself the question, why did Jesus come? Why do you exist? Why do you have life? Why are you here? Who is God? Who is Jesus Christ? Why did he come? Depending on your upbringing and your exposure to different arguments is going to communicate how you answer those different questions. But Jesus is very clearly directing this statement towards, here's a thought in the culture in regards to who the Messiah should be, what the Messiah should do, what he should act like, what he should look like, what denomination he would be a part of in that culture. Jesus is confronting those that are listening to him right now, saying, do not suppose, don't consider, don't have your own opinions. Don't think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. And the, the idea of the word destroy here means to totally annul, annul to make void, to destroy, to, to completely remove the word of God. Don't think that I have come to do away with the Old Testament. And that's the idea of this law and prophets. It's, uh, it's a term in his culture that is going to refer to the entire Old Testament. So from Moses to Malachi. When you sit in the word law, it's where the, the Hebrew word Torah comes from. When you focus in on the Torah, the, the, actual, the meaning of the noun itself is dealing with instruction. It's dealing with teaching. So the law of the Old Testament is here are instructions sourced by God, and here's what he is instructing us to do, and here's what he is instructing us not to do. When you sit with the, the specific definition of what the Torah is pointing to, it's specifically pointing to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 
is known as the second telling. You have Moses going through the whole Exodus story and journey, and he's retelling all the major points in regards to what God did, who God is, what the Jews did during that time, and the laws that God set forth in cursing for disobeying those laws and blessing for obeying those laws. That's found in Deuteronomy. So when we were sitting with Jesus and his temptation, every single one of the quotes of the word of God that he quotes, all of them are out of Deuteronomy. The law, because Moses is relating Exodus, Numbers, and Leviticus, also the law is expanded into all four of those books. And because Genesis is also the book of Moses, those first five books are what are known as the Torah in the Old Testament. But when Jesus says here, don't think that I came to destroy the law, uh, the Torah, or the prophets, again, this is, a, this is a, an idiom to mean the entire Old Testament. So the Old Testament for the Jews, it's known as the Tanakh. The T comes from the Torah. The N comes from the Nevim, which is the writings, and the Kitavim, which is the prophets. So the entire Old Testament, the entire Tanakh is what Jesus is referring to here. And what becomes important is this. The Old Testament is known to contain 613, the Jews numbered them all, the commandments of God. And these commandments revolve around your individual relationship with God, defining who God is and who God is not for you, defines what your relationship with God is to be like, defines what your relationship on the horizontal with other human beings is supposed to look like. So dealing with our morals, our ethics, our behaviors, our words, how we are to interact with our creator and how we are to interact with his creation. Many of those laws in that relationship with God revolve around very specific religious sacraments, sacrifices. Here's your religious duties. Here's what you will do in your religious duties. So many of those things in the Old Testament, they can't be fulfilled today at all because the temple of God was destroyed in 70 AD and there are no more sacrifices. And again, we look to Jesus as the fulfillment of the sacrifice, which is what we're going to get into in a minute. Not only when you sit in the Old Testament are you dealing with moral laws and religious laws, you're also dealing with prophetic laws. Here is what the Word of God says is going to happen, and this is the weight of what Jesus is getting into. Don't think, don't suppose in your own mind, in your own heart, you've got the Old Testament all figured out, and you have your own system of morals and ethics. You have your own system of what it means to be religious and have a relationship with God. You have your own systems and ideas of what a government should look like and what defines what is unjust and what is just. Don't think that you have all of the historical prophecies all figured out and all of the end times prophecies all figured out. Out. Don't think that in your opinions that you are the source of authority when it comes to the right interpretation of the word of God. And that's what Jesus is conveying. When he says that you are going to be persecuted for righteousness sake, 
Later on, right after that, he says that you were to rejoice when you're being persecuted for his sake. He links himself with the whole idea of righteousness, and that's what he is conveying here, that he is the authority of the interpretation of the word of God. Do not think, do not suppose, do not reason you've got it all figured out and that here's all of your ideas of what the Messiah is supposed to do in regards to the Old Testament. I did not come to destroy, Jesus says, but I came to what? Says, I came to fulfill. And if you mark in your Bible, what, what a sentence to underline. I did not come to destroy, but I came to fulfill. Jesus didn't come to destroy your life. Jesus didn't come to destroy other people's philosophies and opinions and religions. Jesus came to fulfill the word of God that has been communicated in regards to who God is, his love for you, his attention for you, and that ultimately he is the fulfillment of every single rule, ordinance, commandment of both the Old and the New Testaments. I did not come to destroy, but I came to fulfill. And then Jesus uses this, for assuredly I say to you. And this is uh, the word assuredly there. It's where it's the, the word itself in Hebrew and in Greek is amen. It's a world, word that is known throughout the entire world, regardless of what language you speak. But amen means true. In our culture, it'd be, we'd say facts, right? That this is, this is a fact, this is truth. There are no ifs, ands, and buts about it. But when Jesus uses this language often because he is exalting his authority, the words that are coming out of his mouth and the, his interpretation of the Old Testament scripture, he is exalting himself and his teaching above everybody else. He said, facts, assuredly, truly, Verily, I, Jesus, say to you that, it's, he says, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one uh, tittle will by no means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. So the idea of here is we are told both Old Testament and New Testament that the heavens and the earth that God created, they are going to pass away. That when Jesus, when all everything is said and done, he is going to recreate a new heaven and a new earth. Go read Revelation 21 and 22. You could get all the details there. A new Jerusalem. This heaven, this earth is going to pass away. But until all of that comes, he's, the, the language is not the smallest character uh, of the alphabet nor one of its strokes is going to be removed, is going to pass away from God's command, God's law, the words that he has expressed, till all of it is fulfilled. And the language there, these two different words for fulfill, so when Jesus says he came to, uh, not to destroy, but to fulfill, that idea of fulfillment is that it's, it's completed, it's, it, it's, it, it's at its end, it's done, it's finished is the idea of that word. This word for fulfilled, that it's going to happen. So none of this, the heavens and the earth are not going to pass away and not the smallest, most insignificant character of the alphabet or the stroke that you need to make to write a letter of the alphabet is going to pass away from the law until everything happens is the language. So Jesus here, he is in this first section 
And what he is teaching and what he is conveying, he's teaching us in regards to his relationship with the law, his relationship with the word of God. Got that handle? Because now the rest of it he presses into our relationship with the word of God. And in our relationship, he says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, it's going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but those who do and those who teach are going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. So here's the instruction. The idea of breaking means to untie. So when Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy, that idea of that word destruction is to completely remove, annul, make void, annihilate the word of God. But he's saying here, anybody who unties, so anybody who takes what they consider to be the least, most insignificant, doesn't matter, law, ordinance, rule, commands of God's word, Anybody who wants to untie that and teaches other people to unbind yourself from it, you don't have to obey this, is going to be defined as least in his kingdom. But those who not only do, but teach others to do also, and don't make excuses and just teach what the word of God says, those are going to be defined as great in the kingdom of God. Now, this is partially tongue-in-cheek, but it's also partially serious. Um, my personality, how I'm wired, how I engage with God, how I engage with you, how I read, how I live, how I teach and instruct. One of the major ideas, like, I'm not here to be your entertainer. Like, and again, this is partially tongue-in-cheek and partially serious. I don't have any stones to throw at those who communicate through entertaining and telling jokes and those kinds of things. I don't feel that it's my responsibility to enter this space and enter this room and be a stand-up comedian. I don't feel that it's, it's my role and my calling to come into this room and to walk you through some kind of emotional roller coaster where we're going to start basic and we're going to build up to a crescendo and hype everybody up so that you're responding to God through the emotion of the moment. My role and my responsibility, I take heavily from this passage. Jesus' instructions to me and to you are, if you teach the word of God, teach it. And teach all of it. And don't make any excuses for it. It's, there's, there's parts of the word of God that are hilarious. There's parts of the word of God that are absolutely horrific. And we can go through those emotions together. But when I enter into this space, into this room, my understanding is that my responsibility is to take out of my relationship with the Lord in regards to his Holy Spirit in my life, my relationship of salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, to crack this open from Genesis to Revelation and to walk alongside of you saying, this is what the word of God says. Do you want to follow Jesus together as a community? Yes or no? And if you don't, that's okay. That's your choice. If you do, awesome. Let's follow Jesus together. If you're still figuring it out, awesome. Let's ask all these questions and follow Jesus together. But in a way where we're not untying. And the whole idea of untying is to say how many Christian congregations and how many people in our culture today want to redefine what the Word of God says. 
God said that then because it was relevant for people then. That command is not relevant for us today. Anybody hear that kind of argument? We hear it all the time. And Jesus, out of our Savior, out of our Master, out of our Rabbi, out of our teacher's mouth, he is saying, he who unties this and he who teaches others to untie it and not to obey all the word of God is going to be least in the kingdom of heaven. But he or she who, this is what the word of God says, Some of these things I don't understand. Some of these things I don't get. Some of these things are clearly morals and ethics. Some of these things are clearly dealing with civics and government. Some of these things are clearly dealing with the Jewish religious sacrificial system. So we have to walk alongside of the proper interpretation of the word of God together. So Jesus is telling us what our relationship with the law is to be, but then he gets to the conclusion of this last sentence, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds, abounds and abounds, abounds exceedingly above the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So now we have these two, we have three statements from Jesus. One, if you untie the law and you teach others to do so, you're still saved. You're still in the kingdom of heaven, but you're going to be small. You're going to be insignificant. On the other side, you have the, if you do them and you teach them, then you'll be defined as great, mega, big in the kingdom of God. But then he's got this final statement of you're not even able to get into the kingdom of God unless your personal righteousness exceeds the personal righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, Many of the commentaries in this section are going to say, they're going to press into later interactions of Jesus with the scribes and the Pharisees. Very specifically, once we get into Matthew 23, Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, over and over. Because their righteousness was, it's, they're, they're washed and they're clean on the outside, but they're, they're unchanged on the inside. That is definitely, you can press into that interpretation and teaching in regards to what Jesus is saying for your righteousness to exceed theirs. But the weight and the thrust that Jesus is pushing into this statement, the scribes are the experts in the law. These are the men in the culture, in the day, who have memorized the Torah memorized major portions of the writings and the prophets. These are the lawyers. They are experts. This is their life that has been dedicated since they were little children. And their entire education and their life experience has been dedicated to what does the word of God say and how do you live it out? The Pharisees were known in this time to be the strictest most literal sect or denomination of Judaism at the time. We get this testimony out of Paul's mouth. Paul, the apostle Paul said, according to the righteousness of the law, that he was living as a blameless Pharisee. That comes out of Philippians chapter three. 
But in that, he says, all of my own righteousness, I consider it dung, worthlessness, rubbish in comparison to the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. The thrust and the weight of what Jesus is putting us all in and sitting us down, he says, unless your personal righteousness is greater than what you would define an expert in the word of God to be. Who's your Christian hero? Anybody from the past? anybody from the present, you put this person on the highest pedestal of that man, that woman, there's a Christian. This is what Jesus is saying. Your personal righteousness has to exceed theirs, exceedingly abundantly above theirs. Does anybody feel hopeless now? If you don't, let me help out to make you feel even more hopeless. What Jesus is going to get into and where we're going to be for the next six or seven weeks is he's going to bring out a series of teachings on this idea of righteousness. He's going to deal with murder. He's going to deal with adultery, loving your enemies, and a variety of subject matters. And again, this overarching idea of righteousness is going to play out in the Sermon on the Mount, in his other teachings, and all the way through the gospel. But at the end of this section, at the end of chapter 5... Everybody turn there. I want you to see it, and I want you to feel the weight. He says, therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Anybody? I can't live up to my own rules. Don't even come close to living up to God's rules and what he defines righteousness as. You shall be perfect. He puts every single one of us in a corner with absolutely no way out. If you want righteousness through obedience to the word of God, you must have perfect obedience to it. Now, when you go back to what Jesus said in the very beginning, don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. You are listening to Jesus define himself as perfect. Jesus perfectly obeyed the moral teachings of the Old Testament. Jesus perfectly obeyed the civil, his relationship with the Father, his relationship with humanity, the religious requirements, every single law, rule, ordinance, statute, Jesus says, I lived it out to perfection. And that's why when we look at his death on the cross, he lived the perfect life that none of us can live. So therefore, our righteousness doesn't come through this obedience to a set of rules, our righteousness comes by trusting that he fulfilled all of it for us. And we're going to press into that in just a minute. At the end of the sermon, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. He has lots of conclusion and therefore statements. Matthew chapter 7 verse 12 says... Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, which is known as what? It's known as the golden rule. For the last 2,000 years, this is the title that's been applied to it. 
And he's, it's known as the golden rule because Jesus has told us, I have come to fulfill all of the law and the prophets. And then here he is saying that uh, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. And then he says, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus lived out this in perfect obedience. Jesus, as God, he is still living this out in perfect obedience towards us, which is awesome. In verse 13, where, again, back in uh, 5, he said that uh, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. 7.13, he's saying, here is the way to enter. You need to enter by the narrow gate, the singular gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. I quote those just so you know where we're headed in the rest of Jesus's message because it gives weight and an anchor and a foundation to what we're going to continue to discuss for the next three to four months as we sit in this sermon together. But now we really want to press into definitions. What does righteousness mean? Righteousness in the, in the Bible it's very, the very first time that it's brought up is in regards to Abraham responding to God. Abraham, in, in, in Genesis chapter 15, we are defined that, that Abraham's faith, that his trust in God, and how that motivated his actions and his behaviors, his faith was accounted to him as righteousness. We're told in Genesis 18 that the reason God chose Abraham and called Abraham out of Ur is because God knew and appointed Abraham that he was going to teach his children righteousness and justice. These are huge words in the Old Testament, and they are huge words in the New Testament. Sedekah and Mishpat are the Hebrew words. Sedekah, righteousness. This is your personal, moral, and ethical foundation. This is the framework of your life. This is who I am. This is what I think is right and what I think is wrong. And we are told throughout the word of God that we can't look to ourselves to be the source of defining what is right and what is wrong. We look to the creator who created the heavens and the earth and to his law to see, God, what you define as righteousness. And the word righteousness, again, this is, this is between you and your creator. This is your personal righteousness. When it comes to mishpat, when it comes to justice, this is now dealing with, with us as a, society, as a society. How do you take those moral and ethical foundations and commands and apply them to the culture as a whole? Proper application of righteousness is justice, right? Improper application of what is true, and you now have a legal court case, and you come to an unjust decision, 
That is the opposite of justice. So these two words, they're connected to each other in righteousness and justice throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And when it comes to our personal righteousness, we are told very clearly, you have two options. If you want to be right, if you want to be morally and ethically pure, good, clean, true, right, you have two options. One option, perfect obedience to all of it. Not a turning, not a, not a shadow of turning to the right hand or to the left at any point in your life. Anybody, option one? We've already all failed. Impossible, we can't. So option number two is that righteousness is given to us as an act of his grace. It's his righteousness that is given to us through faith. Anybody do that? Sounds pretty easy, right? Turn to Romans chapter 10. We could spend hours and days going through a variety of teaching and proof texts in regards to the foundation that Jesus is giving to us when it comes to righteousness. If you really want to study this out, if, you, if this is not a familiar subject for you, if you have not already studied this out, if you're struggling in, in this in any way, you need to press into three New Testament writings. You need to sit with Paul in Galatians. Galatians communicates to us the gospel, and Paul immediately communicates to us anybody who believes in Jesus Christ and wants to turn away from that faith and the righteousness that comes by that faith, and you want to step into some kind of religious legal system of do's and don'ts, you have abandoned your faith and relationship with Jesus, and you've gone back to a religion. And Paul says very clearly, don't do that. It's six chapters. It's really easy. Here's very specific doctrine. He brings up Abraham as the foundation of that doctrine. It's not us that are living. We are dead and buried to our own righteousness. We are alive in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And then Paul spends some time in duty. Same thing in Romans. If you want to expand that subject matter of righteousness, Romans is the letter that you want to read. And we're going to read one of those chapters in just a minute. But Paul's taking the exact same argument, but expanded. Spends a lot of time in doctrine and teaching and instruction. And that ends with, now this is how we apply it in our life with Jesus Christ. The third one is Hebrews. Hebrews identifies why Jesus is better than all of these systems of the Old Testament. Why Jesus is better and why faith in Jesus Christ and the righteousness that comes through that faith in Jesus Christ is better than any other platform that you think that you can stand on. And the reason why it's those three letters is all three of those are quoting Habakkuk's statement, which is the just shall live by faith. You either live by the law and all of it, or you live by faith and that is it. 
So that subject matter, again, if you really want to sit in this, if you want to study this, if you want to wrestle with God, if you want to know that your faith is in his righteousness and his righteousness alone and it has nothing to do with your works and your little checklist, it's all a relationship with him, firm that up in those documents. And this in Romans 10 is going to give us just a little bit of flavor. Brethren, it says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. So Paul's express, he's right in the middle, 9, 10, and 11 are dealing with the Jews in relationship to the gospel and what's going on there. Paul is expressing his desire, his prayer for their salvation. This is, and again, apply this to us. This is in our time, in our culture. As we look at America, as we look at uh, cultural Christians, as we look at people who name the name of Jesus, but we got a question mark whether that's a real faith or not. What's your desire? What's your longing? What's your prayer? It's for their salvation in Christ. I bear them witness. They've got a zeal for God. They've got a passion for God, but it's not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, wait a minute, Paul's talking about the scribes, he's talking about the Pharisees, he's talking about really smart men and women. They have knowledge, but their zeal, their passion, their knowledge, it's not according to God's true definition of righteousness. Says, and seeking, they're seeking to establish their own righteousness. So here's all your religious do's and don'ts. Here's our denominational checkbox. Then here's our creed that you have to agree with and do, seeking to establish their own righteousness. Have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who what? To everyone who believes. For Moses, the law and the prophets, Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks this way. You're not saying your heart, he's going to ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, bring him down to my level. Who's going to descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What, uh, but what does it say? The word is near to you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That you, that if you, listen to this, if you confess, if you say it again, if you're in agreement with the law and the prophets, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, who he is, what he did, fulfilling all of the law and the prophets, all of those definitions that hang upon defining who he is, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe, you trust you got questions, definite question marks, but there is a foundational belief in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this idea of saved, here is how you enter the kingdom of heaven. Here is the narrow gate. Here is the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart, 
that God raised Jesus from the dead. And therein is your salvation, your safety, your deliverance from sin, your deliverance from death, your deliverance from the wrath of God, your deliverance from the destruction of this world, your deliverance from eternal torment. Herein is your salvation, confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. For with your heart... One believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made into salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. There's no no distinction between all these different religious rules, requirements, the Old Testament system and laws, the Greek pantheons, when you, when you cast all of that stuff aside and you just come to faith in the Almighty God through His Son, there's no difference in Jew or Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How do you like the gospel? And just basic, simple definition and pulling everything together in regards to what Jesus said. Don't think that I came to destroy. Jesus was sent and came intentionally as the beloved son of God to fulfill all the word of God. He lived out his first coming in perfection. His sacrifice on the cross is the fulfillment of every single Old Testament sacrifice that's communicated to us. His resurrection from the dead is the singular evidence of that. He tells us that he has ascended to heaven and that he is returning. So we know that there is a future return, that there is a future coming of Christ. That's Everything that has been written in the law and the prophets, it will happen before this earth and this heaven is removed, before he recreates a new heaven, a new earth, and the new Jerusalem that we are going to dwell in his presence. Jesus said, all of this is going to be fulfilled. And your singular entrance into that promised newness is to enter through just the simple, Jesus, I am repeating and agreeing with your rules for righteousness. You tell me not to murder. You tell me not to lust. You tell me not to hate. You tell me not to steal. I'm confessing to you, I have murdered. I have lusted. I have hated. I have stolen. I've done, I've broken all of these different commandments. Woe is me. I am subject and under the wrath of God. In you, in your sacrifice, in your, rex- in your resurrection, there and therein alone I find my life and my hope in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of trying to figure out what's going on in my life and my context and in, in the broad scope of our culture. Somebody, please define to me what is right and how we bring about justice in our own time. And that somebody is Jesus Christ. I have to look at what he has defined as right and wrong. And Lord, may you give me the right interpretation for how this is applied in the right and just manner. In me first, 
in our community within the body of Christ for sure. And as we are a witness and influencers to those who are still on the outside, because we want everybody to make this confession that Jesus, it's your righteousness and your life. And I love you and please save me. I am standing still and I am watching for you to save me and to save others today and for all eternity. Now, this is what we do in communion. This is why we have open communion. Some of you, this, this weirds a lot of you out because you're used to a priest or a pastor making you drink for a cup and pressing it into your mouth and you only have a relationship with God through another human being. That's not the New Testament. Jesus is your mediator. You come to communion to remember that the almighty God became a man and he lived out this perfect life. And in that perfection in his righteousness, he gave his body, he allowed his body to be broken for the remission of your sins. When you hold the cup, it's, this is the fruit of the vine and the imagery in that cup, it's the new covenant. So when you sit in the Old Testament, it's the Old Testament, it's the Old Covenant. We don't live in the oldness anymore. We live in the newness that's communicated through us through the shedding of his blood. It's his sacrifice. Life is in his blood and in his blood alone. So as often as we gather together, we're told that we're to participate in communion. There's different ways to do it. We're going to have a very this specific way of here are the elements during worship. Worship team, come on up. Where, How does God want you to respond in this moment? There's responding in vocal worship. There's responding in prayer. There's responding in having a communication with somebody that you need to talk to. There's responding to the Lord and just remembering who he is, what he did, knowing and seeing and understanding that your righteousness does not come through participating in communion, through coming to church, through obeying your lists of do's and don'ts religiously, your righteousness comes through him and faith in him and that promise of the new covenant. I am making you new right now. I will make you new in the future. Salvation is fascinating because it's past, present, and future. I have saved you. This is what I did on the cross. Look at the cross. Look at what I did. Look at my love. Look at my fulfillment. That's what the cross is to communicate to us. And our cross is empty because it reminds us that Jesus is not hanging on the cross. He paid the payment once and for all, and he has risen from the dead. And the testimony of that is those who saw it. We're sitting with Matthew right now, the evangelist. He saw the resurrection. He ate food with Jesus after he rose from the, again from the dead. He touched him. He listened to him. It wasn't just a hallucination. He watched him ascend to heaven. He was there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was sent to indwell us as believers. So we don't live in the oldness of the letter of the law. We live in the newness of the Holy Spirit. In Corinthians, Paul said, the letter kills. The spirit is life. And our relationship is through faith in Jesus Christ by being born again, made alive, made anew in him. He has saved us in the past. He is saving us today from our sins, from the culture. And we have this promise that when he comes and gets us, 
we will be fully saved, delivered into his glory for all eternity. How do you like the gospel? Now's our time to tell them how you like it. Amen.